Behold nature, brown in tooth and bowel. There's a fierce competition in the green world for the amorous affections of their animal neighbors to pollinate their flowers. And on the heels of pollination comes an equally fierce battle where plants try to win a one-way trip down a furry, scaly, or feathery beast's digestive tract. It's plants, animals, and a big ol' pile of poop. This is a single acorn podscat. But first, a word from our sponsor. Having some friends over to your lily pad? Hosting a formal croak A and tea party? Tote Car is a car towing and valet service for any occasion. Nothing makes us hoppier than freeing up parking spaces for your guests by having unwanted vehicles towed or helping your guests as they arrive at your cocktail war tea. Forget about your car worries and give us a call today. Hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Iwigi, and I'm here with Glenn Etter. Yes. Hi, Professor. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing great. <laughs> so, Glenn, I'm pretty excited because, you know, we usually talk about jobs that you have had in the past. That's right. I've had, I've had many. Yeah, but uh, I was really excited that you were so inspired by our conversation last week, and you actually have started a new business called The Salted Beak, which is an all-natural salt <laughs> uh, harvesting company where you harvest salt from albatross glands, I'm told. That's right. Well, various tube noses, we call them, the tube nose birds. Um, yeah, we have a, a special collector that's you know gentle to the, to the tubes of the nose and um, actually delivers some nutrients. We like extract the salt, but deliver a little bit of nutrients to the birds so that they can fly out and you know gather more salt. We're very kind. No, no albatrosses are harmed in the collection of our salt. That's great. You're doing them a little bit of a service too, because they're trying to get rid of their excess salt, right? Yeah. Nobody wants salt all over their face. I no. mean, a few people do in some spas, but we actually have a spa salt available as well that we can deliver to those. So oh, nice. Yeah. We're trying to please everyone. They say it's impossible, <laughs> yeah. but I think starting with with some good bird excreted sea salt is is one way to do it. Yeah, that's the first step. Yeah, what's your motto? Honey, let me be your salty bird. It's from a song, Salty Dog. I think it's a little obscure. Yeah, but uh, we put in honey there because we were thinking of extracting honey from bear claws later. Obscure but. references usually work when you're dealing with super niche markets. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the more obscure the better. That was our yeah. original motto, but. It was kind of it was kind of meta. It was like a motto about the motto itself. Yeah, yeah. I decided it'd be better to bring in salt. I don't know. Do you have an idea for a motto? Like no, no. I, ideas? I, I'm into that one. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you know, a snazzy little uh, t-shirt with a little albatross picking its nose with its you know little feet salt, would be good. We had pick salt, not boogers. We had make salt, not war. So we had we had a lot of options. We had a little election in honor of the upcoming election. So it was fun. Oh, yeah. So everybody got to vote. Yeah. Yeah. I was the only one. I'm the only one in the business. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a little election. <laughs> but I had options. It's good yeah. to have options. It is great to have options. Yeah. yeah. Uh, democracy of one. Always good, right? <laughs> <laughs> got to start somewhere. You can please everyone when the, everyone is just one person. Yeah. So speaking of pleasing everyone, should we talk about poop? I think so. I mean, I'm always ready to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm sad to say that this is our last episode here in uh, season two of The Single Acorn. And yeah, uh, we are wrapping up our discussion of uh, poop in all its glorious forms. 
and uses. And so, yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to dig into sort of the sticky place at the intersection between plants and animals and uh, animal poop. Uh, so last week we were talking about how plants poop and now we're back to the animal world. But yeah, looking at that intersection between uh, the two. Before we dive in, I just want to make a pathetic plea to our uh, listeners <laughs> again. So yeah, uh, it really helps if you can leave us a five-star review. But more important than that, uh, we love feedback. So you can give us feedback directly through whatever you're listening to this on. But also at crowspath.org slash podcast, uh, we have a Woodland message board. So you could send us feedback on there. You can also post fake ads if you want us to read those on the air. And yeah, just send us other made-up <laughs> but informative natural history stuff. You get a free um, free subscription, right? If we air your ad on our podcast, you can listen to the podcast for free. That's right. We're offering that for a limited time only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is true that everyone else can also listen to the podcast for free, but still, you can listen to it for free. For extra free. That's true. Yeah, and listen to your own ad. Yeah. Get that fuzzy little special feeling when we mention your name on the air. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, if you do have ideas, we in our next season, we are going to be looking at life in a city. So we're going to be doing species profiles on different urban and suburban animals. Uh, so the first part of it, we'll talk about what makes a good urban animal. But then after that, we'll uh, look at specific species and how they sort of cope with life in an urban environment, both for plants and animal animals. So if you have your favorite species and you want us to profile that, send us an email, get in touch with us and uh, let us know. And then you get your own very personal or your not we won't do a personal <laughs> episode but we'll do a personalized episode on your favorite animal so yeah we could maybe you know if your patreon donation is big enough i think we could do a whole episode just on on a person yeah we're we're not desperate but i think just because it'd be interesting glenn the urban animal <laughs> from shitty to city i think is what we should say <laughs> yeah there we go perfect segue <laughs> so back to the shitty uh so what is a fruit so this is not, you know, a pile of poop, but we're going to turn a fruit into a pile of poop. So to start, what is a fruit? My understanding of a fruit, this could be wrong, right? Because I'm sometimes wrong. <laughs> That's why you're here, Professor. <laughs> I I thought it was a, <laughs> oh my God, I hope I'm not really wrong. A a fertilized ovary of a plant that, that had become swollen and engorged and then remained on the plant. It could be totally wrong. Yeah, so, uh, no, 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 you're you're basically spot on. So, examples of fruits? Well, you know, it's funny because the first fruit that came to mind was apple, but I think I remember that that's actually somehow not a fruit. I think that that's a hypanthium or something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's also a fruit. But I would say an example of a fruit. A good, uh, let's go with strawberry. Sounds like a fruit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good one. It's my son's favorite. Kiwi. Kiwis are fruits, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Tomato, though, is also a fruit. Yeah, I believe. it is. Yeah. Te uh, technically, well, legally, a tomato is a vegetable, uh, but botanically, <laughs> it is a fruit. That's right. Ketchup is a vegetable, right? It's an important <laughs> part of our children's nutritious school diet. Yeah. So you can serve it in schools and call it a vegetable. In thinking about this, there are basically two different realms that uh, you could describe a fruit in. One would be a botanical realm, and there's a, a strict definition that leads to su surprises where something like a what vernac in the vernacular would be a vegetable, like a tomato, is botanically a fruit. Uh, but then there are also things like the little uh, spindly stalk with a feathery top, the little seeds that float away on a dandelion. Uh, those are actually fruits. 
and then like the little helicopters or keys or samaras, whatever you want to call them, from maple trees, those are also technically fruits or botanically fruits. So do fruits always surround a seed? Is that what is that one of the messages I'm getting from this? Yeah. Is, is it the the body around a seed? But there could be other kinds of bodies around a seed that are not fruits. Uh, yes. And yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the exceptions in a second. But yeah, essentially, so you have a, uh, a fruit develops from a fertilized flower, um, or at least part of it. And part of it, the, the walls of the ovary, inside the ovary, there are little ovules that will become the seeds. And the walls of that uh, swell and get large and often are, you know, pumped full of sugar so that they're like a sweet offering mm, to uh, yes. yeah, an animal that comes by. Um, but yeah, so inside of the fruit is a seed or many seeds. But yeah, it all develops from the wall of the ovary. You mentioned apples, which apples are, yeah, the hypanthium, which is what the flower sits on, uh, that part swells and sort of envelops around the ovary wall, which is basically the fruit of an apple is the core that you discard just just the not... little bits around the seed around the seeds itself yeah exactly that that really tough so it's got a double covering a double covering yeah the apple seeds and and so in that situation the apple itself is maybe what we would think of as like a fruity fruit is what i guess i'll call them in this is like the vernacular understanding of what a fruit is so it you know if i if I said, you know, think in your head of a fruit, you would probably think of, yeah, strawberries or apples, raspberries, kiwis, bananas, avocados, stuff like that. You might also, if you're out in the woods and you came across a juniper or a red cedar and you saw these little blue berries on those, you might think of those as little fruits. And so the, there's like this vernacular understanding of what a fruit is, and that might exclude things like those Samaras from maples that are botanically fruits, but sort of have a functional difference. So and, we should probably say something like, would anyone like some vernacular fruit on their cereal? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Just to be clear. Um, yeah, we could do like maybe the Samaras. I mean, they might want a botanical one, but I don't think Samaras are that good on cereal. They might be. Yeah, I've eaten them when they're ripe. Uh, I've watched mice eat them and chipmunks, which is never <laughs> a good thing to do. You don't always want to learn from the animals what's edible and what's not edible. <laughs> I wonder, you know how there are watermelon seed spitting contests? Yeah. I believe there are. I wonder if there's Samara spitting seed contests where you like launch out of Samara and then it helicopters. Maybe you have to hit a target. That'd be great. I, a few years ago, had collected uh, a bunch. I just had a bag in my back of my car and I had been collecting box elder Samaras and ash Samaras. And, and then my plan was to take them to a bridge and then drop them off and sort of map out how far yeah, they, they went. Far and they then go. I can't remember what happened at the box. So my experiment. That would experiment... be spectacular. That is just just explosion of Samaras yeah. off a bridge. I never got to take my idea to fruition. You can still do that. Ah, fruition, yeah, nice. Gross. Vernacular fruition. Yeah. Or yeah. No, botanical, I think. Hard to say. Both, we'll call it. <laughs> um, all right. So we've got this understanding of, of fruit. And what we're going to talk about today is like the fruity fruits, the lowercase uh, vernacular fruits, not the botanical capital F fruit. Yeah. And so a couple of non-botanical fruits that I wanted to mention. One was the juniper. And then the other one is a uh, what's uh, called a yew, Y-E-W. And uh, yew plants are, they're conifers and they have these sort of yellowish green needles. They look almost like a mix between a hemlock and a fir. And then they have these bright red berry looking things that are, they're not cones that have been modified like they are in junipers, but it's a seed 
that exudes out or extrudes out or creates this red fleshy covering around the outside of the seed. What they're doing is basically exploiting, I should back up and say that uh, all fruits, botanical fruits, come from angiosperms, which are flowering plants. So with the evolution of flowers came the evolution of fruits, which were these uh, sort of uh, modifications of you know, a cone-like dispersal to disperse the seeds inside of the fruits in a variety of different ways, whether it's through water or uh, animals ingesting them or wind blowing them or just rolling down hills. And so then there are conifers that have, through convergent evolution, taken on the appearance of what we would call like a fruity fruit, where they're bright red, they're fleshy, they're sweet, and they're these offerings to birds to pick them up and eat them. Animals think. Yeah. You, the you, they're not berries, right? They're called something else. Arils, annals. Yeah, aril is a structure that's produced by the seed itself on the outside. So uh, with ants, uh, ants have a special relationship with trilliums and trilliums produce what's called an aleosome, which is an oil body that's on the outside of the seed. And it's these sticky little uh, nutrient packed little packets. And so ants will come along, grab the seeds of the trillium and the trillium has this uh, aril on the outside of it. And the ants will bring it back to their colony, eat the aril which is called an aleosome in that situation, and then discard the seed. And then with the U, it's the same where the seeds have that arrow, which is this outer structure that the seed produces that uh, is an offering to to animals. It's poisonous, right, to us, to the human animal, or maybe not. So the this is one where there's like a big asterisk, and the asterisk here looks like a skull and crossbones, <laughs> which is uh, don't eat anything that I tell you to eat <laughs> or tell you that I have eaten. <laughs> yeah, you is one that you have to be really careful with. It has a chemical in it called taxol. The genus is taxis, and so taxol is uh, this, I think it's a type of oil, or I'm not sure exactly what it is, um, but it's, it's super, super toxic. And Taxol is the one that's a cancer phase for cancer treatment. Right? Yeah, so Taxol is used for treating breast cancer. And it, it, if in people, you know, if you... And it doesn't take much, but you can you can get convulsions and, you know, pass out and you potentially die from ingesting too much taxol. You has the taxol concentrated in the needles and the seeds and the twigs. So this fleshy outer covering is not toxic and that part is edible. And you'll see like I've seen deer munch on the fruits of it and they're not cracking the seeds like a mouse. Mice are granivores so they're eating the seeds themselves they crack the seeds and they'll crack the seeds not of you but of other things and eat those but with deer they're swallowing a fruit whole and they're just digesting the arrow and then the seed which it makes sense for the plant to have you know poisonous seeds because the then the animal will flush the seed out of their system before they can digest it so that they don't you know have any of the negative Get impacts the of the right. toxic seed Again, with the big asterisks, I have eaten the red outer covering of the yew plant, but I definitely don't recommend it. It's like pretty risky. I was doing, I was trying to eat a hundred different species in a year, um, and so <laughs> you're gonna I, say in I, an hour. In an hour, no. So I added that that to my list. Did you make it? Did you make all hundred? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not just you that's toxic. They're you know like um, uh, okay, apple seeds. I'm not toxic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish it was a different common name because it's so hard to. S pronounce the Y E W as opposed it to Y O U. Yeah, I was. 
when I worked at an outdoor school, we had to have nature names for a year, which I liked. Um, but I was toying with the idea of having you as my name. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, you. Yeah, it's me. My name is you. But... Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what I was going to say is uh, before you interrupted me <laughs> is uh, there are other like a bunch of things have toxic seeds. And so like uh, apples, which we mentioned earlier, they have a cyanogenic compound in them, which, you know, can be used to produce cyanide. And um cyanide is not edible and i should also qualify there are plenty of things like you could not eat y-e-u uh <laughs> y-o-u you could not eat poison ivy berries uh the little fruits of poison ivy they would be totally toxic to you but uh i've watched deer i've watched cat birds i've watched cardinals uh all ingest those things so just because something's edible to you doesn't mean it's edible to something else and just because something's edible to something else doesn't mean it's edible to you but uh apple seeds are not edible uh you can ingest them and your body won't break down the seed coat but if you ground them up and ate a bunch the of them yeah if, yeah you could die if you had uh about it i think it's like 200 apple seeds if you ground them up and ate them they would kill you because of the cyanide in them um, and all of the, uh, I don't know if it's all, but um, all the species in, so apples are in rosaceae, the rose family, and all the things in a fellow genus in rosaceae prunus, all the seeds are, uh, and prunus includes uh, plums, apricots, cherries, Prunt. and prunes. Yeah, those are <laughs> all the, um, the seeds are toxic in those, but they have these like, they're called droops. It's this big fleshy a uh, sugary sweet thing that encases a hard single seed in the inside and so they have this hard shell that protects the seed inside and so having the seed also be toxic and protected in this hard coating makes it less likely that an animal ingesting the fruits are going to also uh, digest the seed hey, you don't want your vehicle to die right yeah. you don't want your car to die before it poops out the seed no definitely not. if you had a if you had a car that pooped out seeds. Yeah, exactly. If you had one of those, like in Back to the Future. <laughs> it's like, that's what biodiesel is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mentioned poison ivy. Uh, a related uh, plant to poison ivy is cashew. And cashew seed coats contain a lot of arushiol. And you can buy roasted or unroasted cashews, but even the unroasted ones are still roasted. They're just roasted not as long and at a lower temperature. Um, but arushiol can be broken down and... Uh, removed from the like outer seed coat so you're just getting the inner contents of the seed um, which is the endosperm and, and the embryo i lived in brazil for a while and they, we would drink the juice there cashew it's called oh really of the fruit yeah yeah pretty good is it cashew milk or is it a different type of juice no i think cashew milk would be made from the the seeds the cashews the nuts we call oh them. you're talking about ground the... up but the, it has a fruit around yeah yeah, yeah. It has a fruit around. oh cool yeah I'll send you some. Oh, great. Next time I'm in Brazil. Oh, okay. I was like, uh, I'm pretty sure you're not in Brazil right <laughs> now. We're not in the same place, but. It could be. It could be. We're teleconferencing. Um, all right. So, uh, with, uh, so we talked briefly about uh, fruits and then we talked about seeds. And seeds have this outer covering called a testa. And so they have this hard outer shell that protects the inner contents that's the nutrients for the developing seedling and the embryo of the seedling, which is the fertilized embryo. Um, and so fruits are essentially a mechanism to disperse those seeds uh, from one area, the parent plant, to another site, which is potentially where that thing will germinate. 
So there are two basic strategies in terms of uh, how a plant produces fruits and seeds. And so uh, one of them is you can have a seed that is edible and then the fruit is inedible, right? So that's one strategy. And this would be like an acorn or a walnut or something like that. The way that the plant prevents itself from uh, not making it to the next generation because it's producing edible seeds and it doesn't want the seeds to be eaten is it produces an overabundance and it's called masting where it'll produce prolific amounts of the fruit in one year of acorns or walnuts or um, whatever other uh, fruit and then in subsequent years it won't produce any and so mouse populations uh, squirrel populations whatever can't sync up with it and destroy all of the acorns every single year. And are they rely? They're relying on animals to take this abundance and start burying it different places for the dispersal. It basically yeah. relies on animals burying it and forgetting it. Yeah, that's their strategy. Yeah, or dying. I mean, there's a huge, huge rate of mortality among squirrels and uh, turkeys and other animals. Well, turkeys don't cache them, but uh, blue jays and and squirrels. So um, yeah, they're relying on them. They produce something that's edible, the seed, and if it gets eaten, again, it kills the... The seed is the next generation. A seed is a plant. And so if a seed gets eaten, then it's dead. And so they're relying on, yeah, forget for squirrels or squirrels storing or these... Death. Or death. Yeah, storing these seeds and then, <laughs> yeah, dying a tragic death. So that's sort of one strategy of how you could uh, generate fruits. And then the other is you produce edible fruits and inedible seeds, which is what we were just talking about with these toxic seeds of apples and cashews and stuff like that. So in these edible fruits, they produce, you know, these excessively sweet outer coatings, and then they have a really hard testa or shell around the seed that protects the seed so that when an animal sees this big, bright, uh, ripe red, you know, fruit, honeysuckle fruit or whatever, it gobbles it up. Uh, it doesn't chew the seed and crack it open, itself. but it passes it into its stomach, passes through the digestive tract, and then it plops out this nice little pile of fertilizer at the other end. And it turns out that this strategy is incredibly common. I was pretty surprised when I read this that not in every area, but in some places up to 95% of woody species are it's called endozoochery, uh, which just means zoo, uh, endo means inside, zoo means animal, and then cori means dispersal of seeds. So animals that disperse seeds by taking them inside their body. It's extremely common. So 95% of the plants on woody species would have an animal had at one point carried carried their their seed around yeah which i guess presumably is, pooped it out yeah which is not it. that surprising like if you go to a mature forest most of the overstory is made up of things that have winged seeds like maples or all the conifers have winged seeds except for you and junipers uh, but if you go to an open area like under a power line or in a meadow uh, or an edge of a forest almost everything there all the shrubs pretty much have you know, it makes sense if you're really tall to have a wing seed because it has to fall much farther. But if you're a shrub and you're six feet off the ground, having a wing seed isn't going to really do anything. So having unless a, it's like a dandelion and just like uh, yeah, unless it uh, floats yeah. away, or like goldenrods and a bunch of annuals have yeah wind dispersed seeds. But uh, all this is for woody plants uh, that are producing so, yeah fruits. So you could imagine that if you were a shrub growing in an open area like under a power line or uh, in an open meadow, you have access to a lot of sunlight and fruits are sweet 
and they're sweet because they're made out of sugars, and sugars are made during photosynthesis. So if you don't have access to a lot of sunlight, then you don't have access to a lot of sugars that you can be just wasting on producing these big, sweet, uh, extravagant fruits. It's the same thing with uh, flowers. Like in a shady forest, you have ferns in the understory rather than flowering plants because ferns don't produce these wasteful flowers uh, that produce a lot of nectar to attract pollinators. And so it's the same with producing a fruit. You have to have a lot of extra sunlight. If you're not in a sunny area, you can't do that. Uh, so most fruit trees are in sunny conditions. Yeah. I guess this brings up another question. When I when I lived in Brazil, I don't know if I mentioned that. I try to bring that into a lot of conversations because yeah. I like Brazil. Um, I spent a little time with cacao plantations, and I, my understanding was that cacao, uh, which produces a big fruit around the nut that chocolate is made from, uh, grows very well in the shade. Um, so are there other fruits, or is that is that does happen that fruit trees can exist in sort of shadier conditions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like a, a beech tree is extremely shade tolerant and they produce, a, not every year, but they're one of these masting trees and they produce a, a nut. So uh, it's not like a big fleshy offering, but uh, for animals to ingest, but the nut is filled with all these proteins and fats and oils. And those are the nutrients for the next generation. So they don't do it every single year, but they have sort of masting years. And so in some years, they'll produce an abundance of beech nuts. And one of the advantages in that situation, I don't know specifically with the cacao, but with beech, one of the advantages, and same with oaks that live in mature forests, is that if you have a ton of nutrients stored, in your seed, as soon as that seed starts to grow, it has all of these calories at its disposal to send roots deep down into the soil and to send a shoot up above the leaf litter and to start competing basically right off the bat with other plants for access to sunlight. So that's a little different where like if you look at the energy contents of like a beech nut and then you compared that to maybe a strawberry or something, they might have similar caloric profiles, but the calories are being used in a really different way, whereas the strawberry's using it to entice a frugivore, a fruit-eating animal, and the beech is using it to fuel the growth of its seedling. But with the acorns, it's sort of both, right? It, I mean, in some sense, it's delicious for animals and nutritious for them, but it's also supplying the nutrients the seed needs when it starts to grow. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, I guess this is like veering a little bit away from uh, poop, which is what we're here to talk about. But uh, <laughs> with the acorns, acorns don't want to just, uh, you know, some of them have uh, low concentrations of tannins, but uh, particularly uh, oaks in the red oak group, they have high concentrations of tannins, which basically slows down the digestive process uh, for mammals that are ingesting the acorns. So it's not just a free meal. You know, it, it, animals have to it's not as efficient for the animal. So if there's another food source available, they'll selectively go after another food source other than the acorns. So there are other ways of like not just producing a seed that is edible to everything, but producing a seed that's, you know, slightly edible. Yeah. Like a hickory nut has less of a coat or is less toxic to squirrels it has you know no tannin concentrations in there essentially um, but they have a hard shell on the outside that squirrels have to chew through in order to get the tasty nut on the inside and so yeah it's sort of the sacrifice do i create a chemical defense or a mechanical defense so they want to make it enticing to the animals but not too easy yeah in these cases exactly 
Yes, definitely. Um, all right, so with a big fruity fruit, uh, there are essentially three different uh, advantages of producing one of these fruity fruits. The first one is increased rate of germination. The second one is uh, having a pile of fertilizer that the seedling is dropped into. And then the third one is distance. So if you're a winged fruit, like a samara on a maple tree or an ash, you're relying on wind to carry your fruit away from the tree and inside each fruit is a single seed so it's drawing that next generation away from the parent tree if you're a fruit that's you know big and fleshy and getting ingested by animals like a bird you could be you know dispersed much farther away from the parent tree than just relying on wind so those are sort of the three main advantages so i thought we could run through those different advantages starting with uh germination sounds good so with germination, this is basically the, uh, so a seed is a dormant plant and the seed has to break dormancy in order to start growing. So that hard coating on the outside, the testa, is blocking all information from reaching the embryo, which is like the control center of the new plant. The seed is not, or the embryo is not getting access to sunlight. It's not getting access to oxygen uh, or water. And so it's protected from those things that it needs to start growing. So if a seed can pass through a digestive tract of an animal, like if it's in the stomach, which is incredibly acidic, then it starts to dissolve away. Wear away the testa. The testa, exactly. And then by the time it passes out the rear end, the testa is much thinner, it's weakened, and the seed then uh, has is permeable to those things that the embryo needs to uh, catalyze the growth of the seedling. It takes, you know, the fruit is, or the seeds take a little while to ripen or mature uh, while the fruit is developing. So if a fruit got ingested too soon, then that would be problematic for the seeds because the seed coat wouldn't be able to withstand the digestive tract and the seeds might start to get digested. So uh, fruits or plants have ways of flagging. It's called flagging where this is similar to what a deer does when a deer sees a predator, it'll flag its tail. And it's this high contrast color with the background that says, hey, I'm over here, pay attention to me. And that's what the deer is doing to the predator saying, hey, I see you, you're not gonna be able to hunt me. (laughs) And so the plant is doing the same thing where when a fruit ripens, it'll turn from green into like a red color or a bright blue color, some color that stands out sharply against the foliage to signal to uh, the potential uh, frugivores or fruit eating animals. Hey, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. Come get me. I'm delicious. Yeah. And there's a bunch of problems like uh, I love apple cider, but apple cider, if you you know, press it, you're, especially if you get uh, apples earlier in the season before they're totally ripe. Uh, <laughs> there's this uh, plant hormone called ethylene. And like if you put a banana in a paper bag, the fruit releases ethylene and it gets trapped in the bag. And ethylene is a hormone that promotes the ripening of uh, the fruit. The Actually, the way it was discovered was um, on old streets that were lined with lamps that were uh, fueled with ethylene, they found that trees would lose their leaves closer to the lamps than trees that were farther away. Wow! And so, and with they, the fruit, were any of them fruit trees, and they would their fruit would ripen well, incredibly so, fast. So, part of the ripening process is developing in what's called an abscission zone, which is where the cells start to kill themselves off, so the leaf or the fruit can detach from the twig. 
And so okay. ethylene promotes the ripening of fruits, but also the detachment of the fruit from the stem so it can be easily plucked. Like if you go to an apple tree, to an apple that is unripe, and you try and pull it off, it's really firmly attract, uh, attached. But if you pluck a ripe apple, it just pops right off. And that's because ethylene has done its work and created that abscission zone. So could you bring a little canister of ethylene around and like spray it on, make it easier to pick unripe fruits? And would it, would it actually ripen the fruits a little bit? Yeah, like, definitely. If I, mean, I have an unripe fruit on my on my windowsill, I could just douse it with ethylene and then. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's it volatile, so it would just escape. So if that's why putting, I mean, if you have a put it in a bag, yeah, or if you have like a little glass container, you could put it over the top of your little tomato plant and help ripen it quicker. But uh, ethylene, it's kind of a cool thing because ethylene is this, you know, plant growth or plant hormone that it uses to signal to the plant to, you know, speed up the process of ripening. But it's also toxic to um, at least humans in particular. So if I drink way too much cider, I get these horrible, horrible cramps. And I didn't realize it until, you know, years later. Uh, But it's ethylene that causes cramping in humans so if you're ingesting unripe apples too many of them which you can easily do from pressed cider then yeah you can get these really bad cuts. when you're pressing the cider are you crushing the seeds sometimes as well so you're getting the cyanide and the ethylene cocktail potentially a little bit um you're not putting enough pressure i guess you you could potentially uh but you're generally not putting enough pressure on it to squeeze out the uh contents of the seed yeah Uh. So, uh, yeah, it's never a worry. Even in industrial cider presses, it's not a a big deal. Yeah. Um, So there are some animals that are colorblind. Uh, So like lemurs are not all lemurs. Lemurs are colorblind? A lot of lemurs are. They're not totally colorblind. They're red-green colorblind. So they see like blue-yellow kind of spectrum. Um, And so flagging red it's kind of cool yeah so you can sort of specialize who you're attracting to your fruits by having specific colors uh for your berries so uh with lemurs uh there's this cool study done in madagascar and uh so they're you know figs that have sort of this brown color to them so they're not visually they're not flagging to animals in the environment, but they have a really strong smell. And so lemurs that might not see a bright red berry, they would be attracted, they have a really strong sense of smell, and so they're attracted to the smell, and they can detect ripeness based on uh, the scent rather than the visual cues. But in this study, they looked at declining lemur populations in different parts of the island, and then looked at what the forests look like. And it's not that surprising if you have a plant that depends on lemurs for dispersing the seeds and you don't have lemurs then those seeds aren't going to get dispersed the next thing that we'll talk about is uh with scarification and with germination rates and germinate well i guess we could just talk about right now but germination (laughs) rates go way 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 up for some plants that are designed i don't want to use the word designed but have evolved a a symbiotic relationship with uh, seed dispersers if you have a brown fig that doesn't pass through the gut of a lemur it has a really low, like less than 30% chance of germinating. But then if that uh, same seed passes through the gut of a lemur, then the germination rates bump up to above 50, 60%, right? And so- It gets scarred. It's hardship is good for it. Yeah, exactly. Which may or may not be true for us. Yeah. Hard to say. Depends <laughs> on how bad it is. If it doesn't kill you, <laughs> it only makes you stronger. <laughs>
We're not advocating being digested by an animal to make yourself stronger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't in do that. In most cases. We are not seeds. Well, there's Jonah and the whale. I think he came out of it pretty strong. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, are there uh, sea mammals? Do they do any seed dispersal or fish? Are there seeds that are taken in by aquatic animals and then pooped out in the water that you know of? Um, well, typically there, uh, the, there's a lot of asexual reproduction in aquatic vegetation, but there is seed dispersal. So this is a little bit different, but like coconut, mm -hmm. you know, those seeds can float. They have those they fibrous husks right. that can float for a really long period of time and then germinate on another island. Ducks and geese both are eating a lot of aquatic vegetation, but also incidentally ingesting a lot of uh, fruits you know they're not big fleshy berries or anything like that typically right, but... there's a lot less light availability to in aquatic environments because light doesn't penetrate as well into water but there definitely is i don't i don't know as specifically with fish um but i know with ducks there are a number of different species that show up okay. in their feces that are that have higher germination rates than seeds that aren't passed through the digestive tract too bad. I kind of wish orcas. I wish orcas were gulping down coconuts every now and then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just pooping them out. Yeah. Scarring them up a little. I can still dream about it. Yeah, that'd be pretty fun. Sweet. I mean, there are like videos of orcas playing with baby seals and tossing them around and yeah, learning how to hunt. Coconuts. But yeah, it would be maybe they have a game. <laughs> I, at least teach them that at SeaWorld. Yeah, uh, a more humane version of yeah <laughs> playtime. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um. So. With plants, it's a little bit of a balance, right? Because you want your seed to, uh, your seed to be scarified in the stomach, but you don't want your seed to be digested itself. So then how do you do that as a plant? And there are a couple of different strategies. One is you could sort of slow down the digestive process to make sure that the seed, if you have a really tough seed coat, like say on uh, staghorn sumac, staghorn sumac seeds are incredibly tough and their germination rates are almost zero on their own. But then if they spend a lot of time in a digestive tract of a bird, then they'll be able to germinate. So being able to just slow down the process can be helpful, but more plants have adaptations for speeding up the digestive uh, so wait, are, So is process? sumac almost entirely dispersed by birds? Like if you see a staghorn sumac, it was probably a bird pooped it out at some point. Yes, and... Yes and no-ish. Um, so sumacs are rely heavily on asexual reproduction. Asexual. Yeah, so they're clones, right? Something yeah. Nearby. So it kind of looks like a little pincushion or whatever. But the the center of the pincushion was dispersed by primarily birds. And Never. it's one of these that they have two different uh, mechanisms for breaking down the testa. The first is that the seeds are not big and fleshy. They have these little hairs on them that have nutrients in them that are like kind of sweet you can make sumac aid um, but it's not delicious it's yeah because it's not delicious it's one of the last fruits to get eaten so <laughs> if you come along in february and march a lot of the, the female sumacs yeah. still have the fruits and those little bobs the red fruit structures and yeah you get this sort of like freeze thaw process that breaks down the seed coat and then at the end of the winter it gets ingested by birds that are basically out of other wow. food. And then the seed coat is already broken down a bunch. Double scarified. Yeah. You know, this is a mild digression, but when I was a kid, we were wondering where babies were come, came from. I don't know if you did that when you were a kid. Yeah. 
stork. I still wonder a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So one of the stories is the stork brings it, the bird. Yeah. Maybe that's a story from the sumac. And at some point, we thought maybe that we were pooped out by our, mo- our mothers, <laughs> which I don't know. It's just so true for all these plants. I mean, I wonder if we got that story from the plants at some level. Just something to think about. I mean, a forest is, you know, a bunch of orphan trees that spend <laughs> up to, you know, a thousand years just pondering their ancestry. And yeah, maybe, maybe they whispered those tales, their legends delivered by a stork creation stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes. storks, this is interesting. So storks are not uh, frugivores. So they're not ingesting. They're, you know, hunting things and uh, fish and, you know, aquatic vertebrates primarily. But there are a bunch of predators that increase dispersal rates of uh, both dispersal rates and germination rates of uh, seeds. And so uh, this is sort of this cool new line of research. Um, And uh, like there are these things called uh, fruit eating lizards on the Canary Islands. And there's only one type of big fruit producing plant, like a fruity fruit producing plant. And the lizards eat them, not surprisingly. They're called fruit-eating uh, lizards. <laughs> As you might expect. Yeah. And uh, one of the, the cool things is that them ingesting the seeds uh, doesn't really improve the germination rates of the seeds of that plant. These are things in the, the nightshade family. It, it's like 50% germination rates for both uh, seeds that just fall and for lizards that ingest the seeds. So they don't really do anything. They're not helping. However, the, well, the one thing they do help is they disperse the seeds. So they can, right. you know, they eat it and then crawl poop away and then poop it, poop it out. However, they are big time prey for great gray shrikes, which are these oh. predatory birds. So they'll hunt the lizards and then they'll ingest a lizard that has the seeds ingested in its stomach. So the seeds will pass through two digestive tracts. And it's something like 65% germination rates. It. So it does. And the other cool thing is uh, lizards are trapped on these islands, on their own little island. But the shrikes can pop from one island to the other. So they expand greatly the number or the, yeah, the distance that the seeds can travel. So, yeah, an innovative plant strategy is to get eaten, get your fruit eaten by some animal that in turn is going to get eaten. Yeah. And perhaps ideally that that animal will in turn get eaten. Yeah. And so forth. Yeah. What were we going to say? I think you. I was just wondering if any animals, it was the same, same idea, ate the shrikes and then further (laughs) tested the germination rate for that the third time through. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not. Something to think about. And then a black hole digests the whole solar system <laughs> and poops out those seeds in a different universe. Yeah. That's right. Black holes poop into a different universe. That's I true. I think that's, that's uh, next seasons. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, just before this, I was talking about speeding up uh, transit time is the amount of time it takes from when food goes into your mouth and gets swallowed to the time it passes out your bottom. And I, I do want to mention because uh, buckthorn there's this, I think at one, at some point in the future, we'll do a show on all the different misconceptions uh, that we as environmental educators have uh, promulgated, because <laughs> there are many of them. There are many. But one of them is, you know, buckthorn is, uh, I I just, I, I love things that other people hate for some reason. I just like feel an attachment to them. So I feel drawn yeah. to buckthorn for yeah, whatever reason. Hated, yeah. Yeah. But it has, in the fruits, it has a modin, which, you know, sounds like a modin, the, uh, what is it? The uh, laxative. The laxative. Thank you. And so 
I always heard this and I, you know, had even said it myself, like, you know, buckthorn berries are terrible because it's an invasive species and they have this laxative in the berries. So birds that eat them, it actually makes them less efficient at digesting. Yeah. I think, wait, is a, lax, a laxative makes you poop, but emodium sort of keeps you from pooping? Is well, right? emodin is, is different. Emodin is a laxative in humans. But it turns out that emodin in birds actually slows down the digestive process. So there are these birds called uh, bulbuls, um, and they did uh, different study or they did studies on them where they fed them a bunch of these berries and then fed them other berries. And then we're looking at the transit time of the food. And it turns out that the emodin actually slowed it down. There was one study, I think it was cardinals, that they force fed the cardinals nothing but uh, buckthorn berries and they wound up getting diarrhea and had faster transit time so in that one where they were like overfeeding buckthorn berries it had a negative effect yeah for a bird that's not being force-fed buckthorn fruits it's fine transit time I, i'm curious about transit time um are there charts about different animals and what their average transit time is you know, like rank the fastest pooper the slowest pooper yeah i tried to find i mean so for humans it's like six to eight hours or so for transit time um and, and then uh, like on the really really fast end the short answer is no i couldn't find anything that had like a clean layout of like you know average transit time for birds or average for lizards or mammals whatever it probably does exist out there somewhere the fastest end of things that i found was for mistletoe birds which are a uh, species endemic to australia and not surprising they eat mistletoes do you know anything about mistletoes? Um, I believe when you're underneath them, you're supposed to make out. Yeah. <laughs> Did you just wink at me? <laughs> <laughs> There's a mistletoe above you. I don't know why you put that there. Just wondering the whole time. <laughs> no, I good thing we're that. separated. Something by in my tail. eye. Good thing I'm in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. Well, mistletoes are p parasites, aren't they? Yeah. Aren't they supposedly hurting the trees. Yeah. They're on. Yeah, there's like a thousand different species of them. Yeah, they're all parasites on other trees. So they, they have leaves so they can photosynthesize themselves. So they're not like pure parasites, but they their roots penetrate into the woody tree that they're, or plant that they're growing on and they siphon off all their, uh, what are you giggling about? <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Just keep going okay uh <laughs> so they yeah so they um they siphon off uh water and minerals from the tree that they're on the host so one of the big problems for a mistletoe is like if you're if you're any old plant anywhere in the world then you're growing on soil but if you're a mistletoe you're growing way up off the ground and uh you have to find a way of growing there a, a mistletoe would have to germinate up in the canopy. So the way that they are able to ensure that they do that is they have these edible fruits. And like in Australia, where they uh, where the mistletoe bird lives, they're like 85 different species and they have different ripening periods throughout the year. So there's always a time of year when at least one mistletoe is edible. And uh, so the bird will come along and they'll squeeze the the outer part of the fruit is pretty tough and they'll pinch off the top and then they'll press on the bottom of it and squeeze out the innards of the fruit and then they'll ingest that. And then it passes through their body in like six to 25 like minutes. 
Yeah, it goes super, super, super quick. They have really reduced like a stomach-like structure. Birds don't have the same exact type of stomach that mammals do, uh, but they have really reduced uh, digestive tract. And so the uh, seeds basically just fly through. So they have to eat a ton of these to get enough nutrients. Um, But one of the really gross things is that, again, the, the point of dispersal is to get to disperse to a place that you can grow, right? If you are a berry that grows out in the open and the bird that, you know, uh, eats your fruits only lives in wooded areas, like shady woody areas, that doesn't help you. But if, yeah, so you have to have a bird that poops up in the upper parts of the canopy, but also if you just poop on a branch, it might it might fall in the branch and then it'll dry and when it dries, it might wash off. It needs to be sticky. Viscous, super, super sticky. So uh, it comes out, and it's so gross. You can, I'll link in the show notes a video of this. Um, But it poops out a fruit that's not much smaller than the one that it ingested, and then it's got this sticky little string that attaches onto its rectum. (laughs) And so then the bird has to wipe its butt or its its little cloaca uh, onto the branch that it's on to be able to effectively like swipe off the little like sticky is it ever flying around with a bunch of them like dangling out of its butt sort of like (laughs) like holiday ornaments no uh i guess it's possible if it didn't effectively extract it or wipe it if it's pooping mid-flight yeah but then i mean it's it's pretty cool because you know then stuck to the tree and wiping uh, yeah and wipes it there and then yeah that's what I was. I was sort of giggling. I was giggling because the word mistletoe struck me as funny. If you think of it as a missile, like little toes missling around. Then I started thinking about transit time, and then I realized that whenever I heard about transit time, like we're going to be in transit for a day or two days from now on, I'm going to be thinking of like we're just poop waiting to get pooped out. Yeah, by the plane or train or whatever. It's ruined travel for me, Teague. Oh, great, perfect. Yeah, or maybe maybe not. No, it's just we're dispersing. It's we're just dispersing. turned it into a botanical it's endeavor. Made it richer, yeah. Yeah. Botanically Richard, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to mention this just because I absolutely love it, but there's this idea of uh, dispersal syndrome that we've kind of been uh, talking about, uh, but just to make it explicit, dispersal syndrome means that if you're dispersed by wind, there are only a, f- a few different types of adaptations that make sense to have wind dispersal. If you're dispersed by animals ingesting you, there are only a few different variants of that theme. And so if you find a new plant and you don't have any access to looking at the animals that interact with it or anything like that, you could look at the fruits and tell something about how that organism interacts with its environment. Yeah, which is exactly what we do with like fossil versions of plants. And one of the really cool, uh, it's called a botanical anachronism, is with the Kentucky coffee tree. So are you familiar with Kentucky coffee trees? A little bit, yeah. I know I've seen a couple. I was gifted one once. Oh, I really? Take care of it very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm here in Vermont. They 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 have one on the campus, I believe, at the university. Yep. Yeah, outside the library at UVM. Yeah. Yeah. So just uh, you can see it from a mile away in the winter. So what do those those pods look like? I think they're like long beany things, right? Are they legumey, long bean, yeah. string bean? looking things <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> to scientifically describe it although they're not they're not so have you ever cracked one open 
I remember the, I think once they're like really kind of beautiful little round polished seeds. Is that correct? Yeah, the seeds are... are One might use them for marbles. Quite large. Yep. Or like a Moncala board. They'd be perfect for those. Oh, yeah. Perfect for Moncala. Yeah. And then, uh, so they're these big, they're not so stringy, but they're these big flat pods. And if you get them early yeah. in the season, yeah. there's this guy that uh, lives in Texas that reached out to me about getting some pods. So I went and collected a bunch. And if you crack them open they are they have this like green gooey stuff inside and then they've got these big seeds and the seeds are i sent him some a few years ago and he didn't have any luck germinating them the seeds are really really difficult to get to germinate because they have a extremely hard testa so on need, the outside they need to be scarified their testa needs some scarring big time um i actually i worked did some work on santa cruz island with this uh, habitat restoration organization and we were germinating manzanita fruits before we went out there. And the way that they do it is they, you know, you could collect seeds that have been digested by animals, um, but you can also mimic that process. And so with scarification for something like the Kentucky, Kentucky coffee trees, if you put it in a sulfuric acid wash and then put it in a blender, so it like mechanically breaks it up <laughs> and then it also kind of dissolves the seed coat, you get way higher germination rates that way. So with these dispersal syndromes with fruits, you if you have something that has like a big old pod that's uh, fleshy on the inside and then has this large seed, the seeds are toxic, and they also have this extremely tough seed coat, that indicates that the dispersal mechanism for that is likely by being ingested. Like animal ingested. Yeah. Right. But if you look today, Kentucky coffee tree is extremely rare. Um, so one idea is that it could just be, you know, quote, born to be rare, that it's a like hackberries are never super abundant. There's like one here, one there. And so those are sort of born to be rare. So Kentucky coffee tree could be born to be rare, but it doesn't really sync up with its life history strategy. It tends to be a pioneer species, which tend to produce prolific amounts of offspring that grow in dense stands. Um, it's dioecious. So the males and females are separate. So if it was rare, close to each other, yeah, they wouldn't be close enough. Right? Yeah, and they have these big flowery flowers uh, with generalist pollinators. So there are all these different things about them, and then the fruits are these big fleshy. Uh, they're indehiscent, which means to dehiss is to crack open. So these are fruits that don't crack open when they mature. So there's no way at maturity for the seed pod to crack open and drop the seeds out. Whereas like black locust, which also has a pod, well, unless it dropped into a blender. It's Unless it dropped acid. into a bl <laughs> blender. Just, just, that's a bad reproductive strategy to count on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's maybe <laughs> when we talk about urban animals next time. It's born we'll to be rare. It. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So then the idea is, well, okay, so if it has all these strategies that don't really seem to make sense with how it currently lives, does that tell us something about this as a botanical anachronism, something that doesn't currently fit in with its environment because well, it maybe probably had it. It used to use an animal, an animal that's not around as much, like Bigfoot dispersed it. Sasquatch, Sasquatch dispersal. Yetis. Do they think maybe like mastodons, mega beavers, something something big? Yeah. Just eat on it. Yeah. I mean, you're 100% right. So if you look at things that look like Kentucky coffee tree, you'd have to go to somewhere in Africa where you have these big open savannas, where you have these megafaunas, these large animals like elephants that are ingesting these large pod-like indehiscent fruits, similar to the Kentucky coffee tree. So yeah, so it's thought that, you know, there were mastodons roaming around that were ingesting Kentucky coffee trees and also other fruits like Osage. 
and then pooping them out and germinate them that way. So it would have to no, pass through the really, yeah. really long Giant. digestive tract of a mastodon. What's the transit time of a mastodon? If you look that up. That's a great question. I I don't know. Hard to research. No, well, you could just research an elephant. I'm sure there's information on transit times of elephants. I heard that when I was in Costa Rica, living there for a while, they would talk about a, a number of the plants. They weren't sure. They think they used to be dispersed by these megafauna that aren't there anymore. So yeah. they were dying out, dying out a bit. But there's people with blenders there everywhere making <laughs> batidos. Down in Costa Rica, there's uh, for habitat restoration because it takes time to you know use blenders. So if you can do get animals <laughs> to be free, cheap labor yeah, it's, <laughs> or free labor for you. Electric bill also. Yeah. yeah. In places where they have like, uh, like dairy beef farms down in Costa Rica where they essentially like denude the land and then you know it's like a, a desert essentially after being a rainforest so one of the things that uh habitat or conservationists have done is built artificial bat roofs on the edge of these old farms and then they attract they create habitat structure for the bats and then the bats move in and there's like 10 different species of bats that are fruit bats fruit bats and so they will go and forage in places where there are fruit trees growing they'll come back and the bats are roosting by the thousands and then their guano their scat goes all over the place and the the guano has you know plants bru- uh, berries which are these primary succession trees uh, and shrubs and they scatter them all over in those areas and so they've had a lot of success doing restoration uh, on these impoverished soils restoration by... through bat bat labor yeah our bat friends pretty cool huh i feel like that's what batman should be doing in addition to fighting crime like have a little <laughs> army of bats like he should have an environmental side uh, and uh, batwoman her also it would be amazing and maybe robin because robin's already kind of a bird name yeah you know i'm not super robin can handle the birds i'm not super interested in uh you know rich people getting to decide Can't... what is uh <laughs> justice and who should be <laughs> yeah so okay maybe we should give up the vigilante thing and just do some reforestation well yeah i think that would be a, a great more uh yeah right democratic direction. use of his uh services all right, so we kind of did it in a, a little bit of a, a haphazard way here where we talked about the sort of three different functions of the fruit. And so the first one was germination, so increasing the rate of germination. The second one was uh, offering up fertilizer. Uh, and we just kind of mentioned that with the bats. And then the last one was uh, moving plants a greater distance away from the parent plant. Uh, and I just wanted to close with th- this really awesome... I don't know if it's like a research project. It's sort of like informal science where uh, at the Rocky Mountain National Park, there's this uh, woman there who I think her name's Trisha Stockton, and she runs a greenhouse there collecting plants and raising plants for doing reforestation projects and stuff in the the park. And one of the things that she's done is uh, collected bear scat and then germinated it. And again, it's one of these things where it's like a time-saving endeavor, endeavor, a labor-saving endeavor, where bears have a rapacious appetite and are eating just insane amounts of berries. And in the you know summer through the or the spring through the summer, and so in one of the piles of scat that she collected, there were twelve hundred seeds in there that successfully germinated. Good Lord. She separated them and germinated or did she just plop the whole bear turd like into a garden and see what all came up? 
that's you know what, what would have been great is to do uh just like get a hose and hose it through like a fan and then just have the fan just like spray them all over a uh, field <laughs> that's the way the halloween candy was distributed this year I <laughs> from covid they would just hose fan and then spray out and then stick on the kids i did see some really horrifying images of that yeah <laughs> I would imagine that she planted the seeds individually. I mean, one of the problems, so one of the advantages of passing through a bare digestive tract is that the seed coats get broken down and then you also have all this undigested material in there that acts as fertilizer. And then the downside is if a single plop of bear scat has 1,200, 1200. That's seeds like a lot in of competition. it, it's intense competition. Yeah. Um, so I would imagine that the seeds probably got separated. Looking at images, it looks like in the greenhouse, there's, you know, all these right. trays and that they're all separated. You know, it's mostly Oregon grape and choke cherry. And I have choke cherry in my backyard here. And I've just read that it's incredibly hard to germinate. And so, again, this is if you're going to use it to repair different areas, do conservation projects, you want to save time and energy. And so collecting bear scat could be a lot more efficient and effective than yeah, or bear labor. Yeah. Create a bunch of bear dens at the, you know, in the areas you want. Yeah. And they'll bring the chug cherry to you. I have to think that those those plants have some bragging rights. It's like, yeah, I got eaten and shit out by a bear. Then there were 1200 other seeds and I'm the one who made it. <laughs> yeah. So back off. Yeah. That's like a, uh, what is it? They're different types of shrews that they they have like a dozen nipples and they produce litters of 20. Yeah, or possums so. do that. And, possums, I think, have 13 nipples. Yeah. They have 12 and, in a circle and one in the middle, I think. Yeah, and so there's competition right. between... Yeah, and there's like 20 joeys and they like make a race for it. It's the biggest race of their life, but they yeah. don't get a nipple. Yeah. That's, that's, that's just a little bit wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, we're all kind of like that, right? Where it's like millions of sperm and one egg. Yeah. The big race. Yeah. We all won. We started out as winners. Everyone's a winner. It's more than a participation award. Yeah. Cool. So we started out as winners. We all get the brown uh, the brown ribbon award. <laughs> I wow, pooping out seeds. Well, it, it strikes me that there's you know the other way fruit is used is to sort of enslave humans, right? To, that we're so we think it's so delicious, we keep planting the trees you know getting us to do agriculture to serve their needs yeah i mean that's clever fruity plants michael pollan's take on yeah. domestication yeah. is that's two-way street i've heard him saying that yeah i mean the most successful species on the planet is us and then the second most would be what corn i thought i could say bears bears it's either corn or bears seats. i can't remember <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if bears eat corn. They must eat. They eat everything, right? They're omnivores. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, yeah, maybe we can wrap up there. And that concludes our far too long of discussion. Or maybe we're just scratching the surface of, yeah, the merits and the joys and, yeah, fascinating world of scat and waste and all good things related. Feces on feces. That's right. Cool. Well, thanks for tagging along, Glenn and everybody else. And, yeah, we'll see you in our next season. Sounds great. All right. See you then. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Well, naturalists, what a journey it's been, shining light on the dark mysteries of the dark recesses of nature's bowels. We splashed around in the acidic belly of a pitcher plant, marked the edges of our territory with hyenas, brightened up our faces with Egyptian vultures, cooled off with storks, and even sampled some highbrow civet coffee, and all with the little help of a little poo. And with that, the aptly named Season 2 is now part of our archives. 
Stay tuned for season three, where we'll dive into life in the city. It's raccoons, pigeons, dandelions, and a whole lot more. Until then, we'd greatly appreciate you dropping a five-star review for us. It helps us get the word out there on iTunes and other podcast apps. After leaving a review, head on over to crowspath.org podcast to get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board. Here you can ask questions, suggest future topics, and post fake ads that we'll read on the air. You'll also find archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots of other natural history content. Well, all right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next season on The Single Acorn.